Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Law and Revolution in Ireland, Law and Lawyers Before, During and After the Cromwellian Interregnum. This conference took place in the House of Lords on the 27th and 28th of November 2014. It was organised by Dr Coleman Dennehy in association with the Irish Legal History Society and generously supported by the Society, the Bank of Ireland, UCD Humanities Institute, University College London Department of History and UCD School of History and Archives. The event was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a paper from Session 2 entitled Electoral Law in Ireland in the Early 17th Century. The paper was given by Dr Breed McGrath of Trinity College Dublin. It's a paradox that while it's not always easy or indeed possible to establish when laws relating to parliamentary elections were passed, amended or repealed in Ireland, and while there are frequent references in the early 17th century to concern about correct procedure being used in conducting the parliament, there's no evidence of lack of certainty about the actual substance of electoral law in Ireland before 1641. However, there are questions about the extent to which the law was followed and how um, penalties for infringement were applied. The uncertainty about the laws was about when laws were made, amended or repealed stems from the very poor state of parliamentary records before 1613. Up until the mid-16th century, parliamentary records took the form of parchment rolls compiled for each session, which were the responsibility of the master of the rolls and were held in chancery. However, the conditions under which they were held were insecure and unsuitable. Payments were regularly made in the early 15th century to make the premises in which they were kept waterproof. Statute rolls were missing for at least 20 of the years between 1484 um, and um, 1541 to 43. The records for six others had been lost before 1617, while the rolls for a further eight parliaments were destroyed in 1922. There were regular complaints about missing or unrecorded acts, and the 1520 to 21 parliament noted that while many acts had been passed in parliament, quote, a greater part cannot be showed or found of record so that the effects of many of the said acts cannot now be held in remembrance. This wasn't attributed only to carelessness. It was asserted that the acts were being concealed and embezzled purposely by sinister ministers, having the guard and keeping of the same, so that such provisos and articles as should be beneficial for our said sovereign lord or his said subjects might be utterly put out of the said acts. In the 18th century, John Lodge commented on the very poor condition of the writs of return, but he also noted that quite a few of the returns for 1634 and 1660 were missing. Those that, didn't, that did survive all perished in 1922. Apart from the parliamentary rolls which list the statutes that were passed, um, amended or repealed, the journals are the official, obvious source for information about how electoral law actually operated. Official journals exist for the Irish Commons only from 1613 and the Lords from 1634, although John Hooker's account of the 1569 Parliament and extracts from the Lords Journal for 1585 have survived. Even in the early 17th century, contemporaries found it very hard to locate parliamentary records. Sir George Carew noted in 1611 that, and I quote again, precedents of former times have been, through negligence and change of officers, either lost or so ill-kept that little or nothing remains, whereof, at my last being there, I had this experience that the officers, almost in a month's search, could not deliver to the Lord Deputy the Parliament list name of the names which sat in Sir John Parrott's Parliament. While it is not always clear 
when acts were passed into Irish law, both because of the deficiencies noted above of the original records, but also because on occasion the Irish Parliament simply enacted that laws current in England should be observed also in Ireland, thus incorporating any English statutes and ordinances on bloc. Despite the lack of authoritative records, however, we can still attempt to reconstruct the electoral law as it existed in the early 17th century. Um, although, given the state of the records, this, um, this may not be an exhaustive list of, of statutes. For the purposes of the paper, I'm ignoring the law relating to parliamentary privilege as not being principally concerned with electoral law, although it was a subject which greatly exercised contemporaries and indeed did form the background to the, one of the most prominent um, electoral disputes in the early modern period, which I will refer to. It should also be noted that there was a clear break in parliamentary activity after the passing of Poyning's Law, which enacted that no bill could be brought before Parliament unless it had been certified by the Privy Council in England. Before that date, parliaments were held annually and lasted for several months, and they were able to initiate and enact legislation to deal with very temporary, minor and local matters, so they could suspend or vary legislation to deal with immediate circumstances. Any questions of infringement of the law relating to elections could therefore be adjusted on an ongoing basis. Um, to any particular circumstances. After 1494, that freedom was gone, and parliaments also met very rarely. However, as significant a change was that after the 1530s, Irishmen were not appointed as Lord's Deputy or Lieutenant, and the Crown's expansion of control of the entire island of Ireland, which happened in the seven decades or so before 1608, and the changed state, changed state religion disrupted the balance of power, and it became increasingly necessary for the administration to control the membership of the Parliament. In these changed circumstances, the proper conduct of electoral law was inevitably a casualty. Up to 1641, electoral law covered how elections were to be conducted, who might be elected, who were the electors, how MPs were to be paid for attendance, and what punishment could be imposed for any breaches of the Acts. Electoral law did not concern itself with what constituencies should be represented. There were two types of principal constituencies, county and urban areas, and these were decided by the Crown, which was able to increase or decrease their numbers virtually at will. In addition, in 1613, for the first time, Trinity College was also granted representation following the precedent of Oxford and Cambridge nine years earlier. So how elections were to be conducted? Sheriffs in the counties were responsible for the conduct of elections within their counties, but they only actually managed the election of the knights of the shire, the county members themselves, or through de their deputies, although there are references to their attending at least some of the urban elections. The chief magistrates in the cities or towns, they had different titles, mayors, sovereigns, port reeves, borough masters, wardens or provosts, conducted the elections in their own cities and towns on foot of a warrant from the sheriff and they forward their, forwarded their writs of return to the sheriff, who sewed them all together um, and forwarded them to the chancery. The same procedure was followed for by-elections. The indentures of return had to be signed by the most important electors, whether freeholders or inhabitants of towns and cities, both as a guarantee that the election was properly conducted and also as evidence of the MP's mandate from his constituency. In practice, sheriffs had a significant level of discretion in conducting county elections, and this allowed for some sharp practice. The law required that the sheriff publicise the date and place of the election in one of the major towns of the county, and it was to be held on the county day in the morning before the local exercises. 
This was a logical provision, as the date was well known, and the sheriff and his officials would in any case be there, as would the justices of the peace and many other freeholders, either as jurors, litigants, or those who attended a regular gathering of the more prominent inhabitants of the county as a social event or a convenient time and place to do their business. County elections were supposed to be held in the morning, preferably between 8 and 9 a.m., although up to 12 o'clock was regarded as acceptable. The law didn't specify how candidates should be nominated, but the sheriff had to decide which candidate or candidates, in the event of an election, had the majority, and this was generally not done by counting individual votes, but based on a number of possibilities. Um, Listening to um, which candidate had a greater volume of shouts, um, (laughs) um, or else if it was contested, dividing the um, voters into two camps so that they could sort of work out which group was bigger. The sheriff could indeed count the votes, but he wasn't obliged to, leaving considerable room for error, deliberate or otherwise. Sheriffs could influence the uh, the result by arranging for limited publicity about the election, holding it at an unexpected hour, e.g. in the afternoon, in an unusual place, or by failing to ensure that all the voters were allowed into the place of election, and also by deliberately miscounting the votes. There is plenty of evidence that all of these stratagems were employed. Thus, in the Tyrone by-election of 1641, the Commons passed an order forbidding the sheriff from holding the election in any place other than Dungannon. Clearly, he'd been looking for a really small, obscure village. Equally, Belfast Town Hall was fitted up as a court um, room uh, in early 1640 in anticipation of the county court being moved there. It is perhaps in this context that the petition presented by the town of Athenry to the 1634 Parliament should be read. Athenry had never fully recovered from the Nine Years' War, and it had hoped that when the county jail was established there, that the additional business generated by the Assizes, quarter sessions and county courts would restore its former prosperity. This hope was short-lived, as the petition says, by reason that the sheriffs, for gratuities or other private considerations hold their county courts in diverse, obscure villages where neither lodgings nor entertainment may be expected. The timing may be coincidental, but the 1634 elections were fiercely contested. The Kerry and Carlow elections were later overturned, and Carlow Town was actually burnt down on the night of the election. The inference behind Athenry's petition was that holding the court and therefore the county elections in obscure villages could deter potential voters who might have to travel very long distances on bad roads and find it difficult to secure accommodation, especially as the elections were held so early in the morning. Given the size of County Galway, this was to be a genuine consideration. The pivotal role of sheriffs was well recognised by the administration, which had relied on choosing Protestant sheriffs to ensure a Protestant majority in the Commons in 1613. Quote, the sheriffs of counties are generally conformable this year, for which we did well hope of a good return of Knights of the Shire by their faithful endeavours in that behalf. The administration's optimism was misplaced. For the most part, our privy councillors did fail of their expectation to be knights of the Shire when they stood for it, and in their stead are some of the most factious lawyers and turbulent spirits in the kingdom. While there is less scope for chicanery in urban elections, it was often the case that elections didn't actually take place for urban seats, with the town either agreeing to accept nominations from outside or sending blank returns signed with their names to an important person to allow him to insert whatever names he chose in the writ of return. There was nothing illegal about this fairly standard practice, but it did infringe the rights of local electors and reduce significantly the principle of genuine representation. It was first alleged in 1613 with the new boroughs, 
quote, and for that the Burgesses were not there to make the election. The names must have been put in here at Dublin without any election in a blank indenture and so returned to the Chancery. Where urban elections did take place, it was possible for the returning officer to advertise them very poorly or arrange for them to take place at times and places that would be inconvenient to many electors. It was alleged that this happened frequently in 1613, quote, that those head officers should have and carry by their place and countenance the sway in the election, that they might appoint a place and time of advantage for that purposes, which many of them did most preposterously against all law and reason. In Dublin City, for example, the mayor called a small number of voters to assemble in the Thalsall or Town Hall at four o'clock in the morning. The word got out and a tumult occurred. The election was deferred until that afternoon, which of course it shouldn't have been in a different place and people weren't really told, told about that either. There's a number of cases of magistrates conducting a second election without any authority in places such as Carlingford, Trim and Wicklow in 1613. So who might be elected? The law specified a number of qualifications for those who might be elected. There was also a number of implicit qualifications and a number of explicit exclusions. Apart from the principal requirement that MPs should be resident in their constituencies, the implicit qualifications were gender, age and ethnicity, although all except gender were breached on occasion. The precise position of women in electoral law is unclear. There was no explicit exclusion of women, either as electors or candidates, nor is there any Irish reference to the issue being raised. However, it was raised in England, and the antiquarian Sir Simmons Jews did consider the matter, actually in a considerable panic. He was really frightened at the idea that women might actually um, vote. Okay? Um, but he concluded that while there's no reason why they should be excluded, and I quote, no man of honour would accept a vote from them. <laughs> However, the fact that the issue was raised um, in England and caused the Simmons such panic is in itself significant. Women shared all the obligations that men had as citizens, including defence and taxation. It's clear from the muster rolls and other sources that women's role in defence was fulfilled, generally by a male deputy, but occasionally in person. And the few taxation records that we have demonstrate that Irish women pay tax in the same proportions as their English and American contemporaries, about 10% of the population, or, or of the, um, the, the taxpayers. While there's no explicit evidence that they didn't form part of the electorate, it is possible that they did have a role, even if it was only exercised by proxy. There was no explicit rule about age, but where minors were returned, it was generally, although not invariably, for urban seats where they were members of the family dominating the borough or nominated by the administration and were dependents of some important official, often perhaps evidence of the use of blanks. However, in 1640, Rory Maguire was returned for Fermanagh, even though he was underage, as he was the younger brother of the current Lord Maguire. In general, objections were only made to the age of the MP when another point was being made, such as the election of Thomas Radcliffe, son of George Radcliffe in 1641. George Radcliffe was being impeached by the Commons at the time. Um, the question of whether underage peers might sit in the Lords was raised in 1613, and Boyle was unsuccessful in his attempts to have his underage son, whom had all been raised to the peerage, to be allowed to sit in the Lords. While Gaelic Irish had previously been excluded from membership of the Irish Parliament, this exclusion no longer operated. MPs should, however, be denizens of England or Ireland, and a number of MPs who had been born in other countries needed to regularise their position before becoming MPs, although this suggests that they did it in any anticipation of becoming um, an MP. William Sillinger, the eldest son of Sir William Sillinger, the uh, President of Munster, together with his siblings, um, was the subject of a private act passed in 1634 to 
Grantham Denisization in, in Ireland, and he was elected in the following Parliament. The Scotsman William Reading, who was MP for Newry, and the Dutchman Theodore Shout all had taken out Denisizations in Ireland before they were elected. It's unclear whether some of the other Scottish MPs had also regularised their position, although this ethnic requirement might actually be one explanation why Sir Matthew de Renzi, the German-born settler in the Midlands, was not considered as an MP, although his Irish-born son and namesake later was. A number of specific categories of people was excluded, clergy, judges, King's Council, sheriffs and other returning officers. One of the objections to the MPs from the new corporations in 1613 was not merely that they were not resident in their boroughs, but that they included, and I quote, three of the King's judges and all of the King's learned counsel. For obvious reasons, Irish temporal peers were, um, were excluded from the Commons. Sheriffs were disqualified by the, um, the act of the 27th year of Henry VI, not because they were returning officers, but because the Act made clear that at the time Parliament sat annually and for several months and it was impossible for them to fill their duties in Parliament and in their uh, their counties at the same time. Uh, Since the Crown appointed sheriffs in the counties, whereas the urban seats elected their own magistrates, this would have allowed the Crown to ensure the elimination from Parliament of any inconvenient MP by the simple expedient of appointing him as a sheriff, although I haven't found an example of that happening. Um, Within the towns, the existence of a town or city council provided an obvious pool of um, possible nominees, and um, so the the issue didn't arise really there. Um, The requirement for MPs to be resident in their constituency was repeatedly legislated for, which in itself is clear evidence of how frequently this provision was breached. In addition, county members were required to have freeholds worth 40 shillings within their constituencies as specified in the Act. And it was also said that they had, in any of the boroughs, they had to be resident in the borough. An Act of 23rd of Henry VI also specified that county members should be, and I quote, suitable knights of the same counties for which they be chosen, or otherwise notable esquires or gentlemen of the county. More explicitly, no man was to be such a knight who stood in the degree of yeoman or under. In a status-obsessed age, this was an obvious requirement, but was also understandable as only somebody of that would have the education and the financial resources to cope with the role of Parliament man. So what was the electorate? The number and quality of the electors depended on the constituency. The electorate for county seats was anybody with a freehold which produced 40 shillings or two pounds of profit annually. The famous 40 shilling freeholders who continued to comprise the Irish county electorate until 1832. This was by no means an onerous qualification. It had been established by the 1430 English Act, and inflation meant that almost anybody with a freehold qualified. However, in Ireland, freehold, as we mentioned this morning, was not the most usual form of landholding. Most people had leaseholds, so the proportion of the population available as an electorate was much smaller than in England. Leaseholding was more profitable for landholders, and there were many complaints about the lack of freeholders and therefore a difficulty in empanelling juries. While the plantation of Ulster required settlers to create freeholds, there was very limited compliance with this condition. The sheriff kept a record of freeholds in the county, as freeholds freeholders were an important part of the social structure and local administration. They were the pool from whom juries were formed and from whom collectors for subsidies and levies were selected. However, it wasn't unusual for freeholds to be created in anticipation of election to boost one or other candidate's chances of election. And there were accusations that this happened in County Down. The allegation in that case was that the freeholds were actually created after the election to justify the return. 
1613 at least, so the sheriff's lips could not be definitive. The returning officer could challenge any elector to prove that he was a freeholder, and this did happen. But on other occasions, there were complaints that voters were not asked to prove their status as freeholders. No original writs of return um, have survived for this period, as I noted. But only the principal freeholders signed the writs of return, so even if they had survived, we would not have a complete record of the electorate. However, we do have some indicative figures from a number of counties in 1613. These figures should be treated with considerable caution as they only include the freeholders who appeared at these contested elections. Given the difficulties of travelling to the county court, which might be considerable distance from freeholders' homes, and the allegation, at least, that some elections were poorly advertised, they cannot be regarded as complete figures, even for the counties for which we have these records. But that said, the highest figure was for Limerick, which was 314 electors. Down was said to have had 332, Tyrone 62, and Armagh 57. So there wasn't much creation of of freeholds in in Armagh just before the election. The extent of the electorate for urban seats depended entirely on the city or town's charter. For the older cities and towns, the electorate could be all free men or commons, and this could be quite extensive. For the new boroughs, the electorate was restricted to the common council, somewhere between 13 and 25 men. Our only precise tally of voters comes from Yall, which always recorded the number of votes in any election, including its annual mayor and uh, sheriff's elections. Yall's MPs between 1613 and 1634 were elected by between 120 and 133 men. Uh, At least I'm assuming they're men. Okay. Um, however, in the annual elections for bailiffs, based presumably on the same election, they, the numbers was up to 153. And in the parliamentary election of 1628, for which unusually no figures are given, the council, presumably anticipating reluctance among the electorate, ordered that any freeman who did not appear at the election would be fined 10 shillings. The accusation was made that an illicit election in Trim in 1613 was conducted by only 10 members of the corporation. The copy of the Ennis return for 1634, which returned the placeman um, Francis Windebank, provides three signatures, but it's unclear whether this is a full copy of the indenture. The Athboy by-election of 1642, the indenture was signed by only three men with limited connections with the town. That's code for none, okay? Um, But this was clearly a blank return made um, because the town was in the hands of the Irish rebels. However, it is possible that the picture was not quite as clear-cut as reliance on the provisions of a charter might indicate. In the first place, no charter has ever been found for some of the constituencies which were first um, known to be represented in 1634. So there is no evidence for these constituencies, Bano, Clonmines, Four, and Taman, which continued to return MPs up to 1832 as to what the 17th century electorate might have been. Um, Bano was a particular case. It continued to return MPs up to 1832, even though the town had actually disappeared under the sea. Um, even <laughs> the lost city of Bano, okay. <laughs> even in the older, long-established towns and cities, there may have been some ambiguity about qualification to vote. The Limerick alderman Edmund Sexton vindicated his right to two votes in mayoral elections, one as a freeman and another as successor to the prior of St. Mary's Abbey, which he owned. It's unclear whether this practice operated in any other place or in parliamentary elections. Moreover, given the fact that many merchants had not merely votes in their own towns, but they were also frequently admitted to be free in other towns to facilitate their trade, it's technically possible that they could have votes in more than one town. For example, the merchants in Dingle took out freedom of Tralee, and there was a reciprocal arrangement between Yall and Clonmel that merchants free in either town had the right of freedom in the other. 
Furthermore, merchants or other town dwellers who had freeholds in the county would have been able to vote in both urban and county elections. When John Fitzgerald objected to voters in the 1634 Kerry election as being, quote, base peddling merchants, the sheriff's reply was, to certain some merchants gave their voices, but those that are chosen um, were none but such of them as had freeholds and therefore votes. Like any, uh, so how much were they paid? Like any other agents representing their co- communities, Irish MPs were paid wages for attendance. The date of this statute is not known, but in 1464 an act was passed to deal with the case of Robert Rochford, Esquire, and Roger Penkinston, who refused to act as MPs for County Cork until provision was made for their payment. It was noted that, quote, it is not certainly known in these parts what fees said knights ought to have of right for their labour by reason that for a long time knights used not to appear for them. The rates were set down, however, um, that were set down, however, followed the English rates. But the English rates of pay had been reduced over time, and this was not the case in Ireland. Um, Sort of amusing, really. Um, And the the complaints that there were in England about the cost of representing your community were not heard in Ireland. Payment was made in exactly the same way as for any other instance in which men were sent as agents for their constituencies. A daily rate was struck and was tied to actual attendance. MPs could be and were docked payment for non-attendance, especially without prior agreement for exceptional circumstances, such as their own or close family member's illness. The rates of pay were intended to cover the cost of travel to and maintenance in Dublin, or where the Parliament was held, um, with a horse and servant for six days of the week, and were payable for ten days either side of each parliamentary session, as well as during the sessions that was to allow for people to travel to, to Dublin. County members were paid 13 shillings and fourpence daily, citizens 10 shillings, and burgesses 6 shillings and eightpence, although local arrangements for less were often arrived at, or indeed to waive all payments. This was certainly the case for the new boroughs in 1613-15 who could not possibly have found the money to pay their representatives. County members were certainly all paid, which would have been one reason why men were anxious to retain these seats rather than urban seats, as there was a clear system for levying the money and collecting it. The cost of supporting two MPs represented a significant financial commitment for constituencies, especially for the towns and cities. In 1613, um, nine, uh, almost £100, £99.6.08 um, were due to county members, £74.10 for citizens, and £49.13.04 were due to the burgesses. Um, as each constituency had two MPs, that was double the amount for the constituency, so it was a huge amount of money. Um, if all MPs were paid at the statutory rate, the total cost of all wages and expenses would have been 7000 for the whole country, so that was an enormous amount of money. Okay. Um, especially since the, um, they would also have to pay the tax that was levied by the, the Parliament, so that was a lot of money. How well were these acts implemented? Given that contemporaries were clear about the electoral procedure, how well was the law observed? The answer is inconsistently. Firstly, men who were ineligible were elected in every parliament for which we have records. John Hooker records a lengthy row in 1569 when MPs took exception to those who had been improperly returned. To quote him, On Friday, great contention did grow in the lower house by Sir Christopher Barnwall and others of Meath, who thought not that assembly to be lawful for sundry causes. First, for that some burgesses were returned for such towns as were no corporations, then that some being sheriffs of counties and some mayor of towns had named and appointed themselves, but especially because there were a number of English members returned for burgesses whom the said Irish members would not admit because they were resident without the towns for which they were chosen. Hooker did not remark, as he might, that this number included himself and that he was so little resident in his own constituency that he actually got its name wrong. 
However, in the event of disputes, the House of Commons reserved the right to decide on its own membership, and in 1614, given the tumult which attended the Parliament's opening, they took a pragmatic decision to allow a wide range of men who were otherwise ineligible to continue to sit for this Parliament only. In fact, issues of illegal and inappropriate returns were raised at the beginnings of every Parliament, indicating how very frequently the law relating to elections was flouted. Certainly, returning officers returned themselves in 1613, and in 1614, Thomas Branson was excluded from the Commons for having returned himself. Equally, where there were delays in holding elections, either because the sheriff was conniving at um, influencing the results, or the clerk of the Hanapur was delaying issuing the writs, which happened repeatedly in 1640 to 1641, or for some other local reason, the Commons acted to assert its rights. Thus, in 1640, it questioned the clerk about the writs, pressurised, pressured for their um, issuing, and ordered the release of the sheriff of Louth from um, from imprisonment, uh, presumably on account of some shenanigans about the return of one of the Burgesses for RD. The most frequent infringement was the return of men who were not resident in their constituencies, and this occurred with increasing regularity. However, this also happened often in England, and in 1640, at least four members of the um, English Parliament were based in Ireland, and no objection was made to that. In fact, non-resident MPs were so frequent in England that the convention was that they wouldn't be paid. And this practice also came into Ireland, particularly in the 1630s, but obviously also in 1613. It's most probable that John Hooker was not paid for his stint as an Irish MP as he gave the incorrect rates of pay. The one thing everybody knows is what they're paid, so if he gave the incorrect one, that suggests to me that he wasn't paid. Um, For obvious reasons, it was usually Protestants who were non-resident, although towns got around the issue by retrospectively admitting to freedom the men they had returned to Parliament, as happened in 1640 for Richard Gethings and William Smith in Clonmel, and William Ray in Belfast. Ironically, the greatest fuss about a non-resident MP was made over the return of the Catholic, the Man John Fitzgerald for Innes Teague and Kilkenny. We've already heard him um, objecting to the election in, in Kerry. In fact, the case resolved, uh, revolved around Fitzgerald's right to parliamentary privilege as he was facing a court castle chamber case taken by his cousin, Lord and Lady Kerry, and he needed to be elected to avoid the trial. Um, he had been casting aspersions on Lady Kerry's virtue, and in fact, going around at every social occasion in Kerry for many years, explaining which of her children were, had been fathered by Sir Edward Denny and which of them had been fathered by Sir, Tom, uh, Sir John Crosby. Um, so this was a, uh, but the net was closing in on him eventually, and he needed um, a, a very fast election so that he could claim parliamentary privilege and at least put off the urban debt. Two minutes, okay. Um, so, um, what were the remedies for infringement? first one is that sheriffs could be, uh, could be fined um, £100 for a misreturn. Okay? Another provision was that if elections were um, interfered with, the, um, they, should be, um, they should be infringed. And that was certainly the case in at least um, counties Armagh, Roscommon, um, Fermanagh, Tyrone, Dublin City and Cavan in 1634, and Perry and Carlow in 1634, and, and Dublin City. The level of intimidation and threats to withdraw town's charters would also, um, would also constitute intimidation. The remedy for disturbing elections was generally through cases in the Court of Castle Chamber, the Irish equivalent of the Star Chamber. Thus, the sheriffs of Dublin were imprisoned there for returning Catholics in 1613 and again 1634. Um, the 
Court censured the Dublin City Sheriff Christopher Bryce and discharged him from office for mutinously subverting the execution of a writ of return to the city's election. In other words, he returned Catholics. Uh, Wentworth accused him of acting on the advice of priests, quashed the election and ensured the return of the Protestant Nathaniel Caitlin. Bryce was fined the enormous sum of £700 which is you know, serious. Sir Edward Denny's account of the 1634 Kerry election records the angry response of the Catholics who maintained that the deputy sheriff, Blennerhassett, was illegally attempting to return two Protestants. Denny ends his highly coloured account of the, the uh, election with, I accept your lordship will be pleased to take the punishment of this offence entirely into your own hands. I shall be most ready to prefer an information at the Court of Castle Chamber against them. Um, how successful were the remedies? Basically, there's very little evidence that anybody ever got copped for, um, for illegal returns. Okay? Uh, so there was certainly plenty of evidence of chicanery in the sheriff's conduct of elections, some of which were overturned by the House um, or by the courts. However, deficiencies in the records do not inform us as to whether they were ever made accountable for their errors. Thank you. Thank you.